Hey, so welcome to Reflection as a Service. Once again, I'm Paul Merrill, and I'm joined by my co-host. That's me, James. James Jeffers, and we're here to talk about software engineering and entrepreneurship. And James, how's it been? How have you been doing lately? I've been doing pretty good. I just got back from MicroConf in Las Vegas. Cool. Tell us what that is, because a lot of people don't know what MicroConf is. MicroConf is a gathering of folks that are into bootstrap startups. So um, you'll see a lot of folks from the bootstrap startup world there. They'll either give a talks uh, or you just meet them in the hallways and uh, kind of chat them up. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good time, despite it being in Las Vegas. <laughs> Vegas <laughs> is that the worst part of it? I am is not you, a oh, Vegas darn, person. You have to be in Vegas. Well, yeah, I, I don't gamble. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of dry. And uh, it's, it's kind of like, you know, America's adult playground. So... It's, um, it's not really my scene, but other than that, I mean, the conference is pretty good. And I went two years ago, and uh, I was kind of comparing myself against, okay, where was where was my consultancy before, and how's it doing now? And uh, I think some of that was through some of the connections that I made at MicroConf in 2014. So going back two years later, uh, I still kind of feel like I'm still behind the curve of the majority of people there, but I feel like I'm catching up uh, yeah. in terms of like, okay, figuring out this... Um, this big boy game called business. So, yeah. Well, what was your biggest takeaway then? Uh, customer research. Um, a couple of the talks really talked about how if you want to be successful at selling your products, you really have to know your customers. So it pays to do customer research and knowing not only who they are, but you know their psychology and why they buy. So that was the biggest takeaway. Yeah. Uh, but I did I did meet a few folks and I've, I've made some contacts that I hope in the next few years are going to be just as good as how it turned out uh, two years ago. Oh, cool. So. Cool. Did you did you meet the guy from, uh, from Starfighter? Patrick McKenzie. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the first microconf I went to, um, we sat next to each other during lunch and he was suffering from a horrible co- cold. But he's suffering from horrible code. That well, sounds like he was even doing that too because he <laughs> he said, "What's your story?" And I said, "Well, I'd really like to run a like a SaaS." And he said, "Well, let me let me give you some a data point." And he shows me his phone, and it's filled with alerts. That from was his who told you that. I yeah, that's who that was. And so he's like, alerts, so, alerts from his infrastructure where like, there are problems. Yeah, like you got to deal with this, and he and you could tell he was kind of like, "I'm done with this." Yeah. He wanted to to move on to something else. So, um, and I could tell he was not feeling well, but he still took. Like twenty minutes just to talk to me and oh, that's cool. tell me, yeah. And so, um, but that happens at microconf. Like if you're just standing there in the hallway and you're not like talking to anybody, someone will walk up and say, "Hey, I'm Steve. Uh, how you doing?" That's all. And so I actually met some folks from North Carolina that I had no mm-hmm. idea were going to be there. So I made contacts with them, and it was good. It was good. I, I think I'll, I don't know if I'll go back again next year, but I'm going to try to go at least maybe every couple of years. So awesome, awesome. Well, you know my big news that I was selected to be a part of Star West, to speak yes. to Star West, and I'm yep. honored and humbled and excited as all get out to be able to speak at Star West, which is a huge testing com- conference that's out in where is it near LA? What's it? Um, Anaheim. Anaheim. Thank you. Anaheim in June, I think. So make sure to look that up. Um, and we were able to sponsor um, STPCon out at san francisco a couple weeks ago and that went really well so that was exciting and there was a lot of really great folks out there stpcon is one to know software test professionals if you're into conference stuff i think i might have to go to microconf with you one of these years because it sounds like fun it yeah it is yeah 
Cool. Well, as always, um, we're, my company helps sponsor this both for Fairmont Automated Testing Services. Our mission is to rid the world of bad code. We do that through automated testing. Find us on the web at BeauftFairmont.com. And if your company is interested in starting to work on automated testing, that's what we're here for. Talk to us about that. We're happy to chat anytime. We're joined today by a guest, Jeff Lindsay. And Jeff and I go back quite a ways. Um, Jeff began his career at Nortel as a software engineer before catching the startup bug. Since 2000, he has been involved in Durham NC startup ecosystem with companies such as OpenSight, Motricity, and Albright Digital, where he was a co-founder and director of product and technology. During his career, he has worked in many techn technology areas, including software engineering, product and project management, technical sales, technology evaluation and implementation, and product verification. Jeff earned a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from North Carolina State University and an MBA from Pfeiffer University. Jeff is currently co-founder and principal at Marlowe Consulting Group, focusing on new product rollout and technology. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, uh, we're happy to have you here. And, um, you know, you and I go back. We, we knew each other. We started to bump into each other at Motricity. Uh, I didn't start there until about 2005. And I think you were, you've were been there for a long time. In fact, you had three tours there. Is that right? I did have three tours there. It was, uh, it was so good. I kept coming back. <laughs> Excellent. Every time you tried to get out. Every time they kept pulling me back in. <laughs> what, what was the attraction? Have you figured that out yet? Uh, well, the attraction, <clears throat> pardon me. Sorry. The attraction for me was, uh, the first time I left wasn't necessarily under my control. <laughs> so, uh, I was offered an opportunity to come back and, uh, it was to run uh, part of the company in uh, the UK, so I got to spend a good couple of years in London and had a flat over there and really loved London, so that was the main attraction for coming back the first time. Coming back the second time uh, was Southeast Asia. I was offered the opportunity to go help uh, open up Southeast Asia, so I got to spend not two years, but a good six weeks uh, in Jakarta, Indonesia, which oh, was wow. a different type of experience. Nonetheless, it was great. Yeah, Wow. <laughs> Well, that would be really interesting to learn about, about what technology is like over in Indonesia and specifically in Jakarta um, and what the technology in Southeast Asia was like. A lot of these places had mobile devices, which is what Matricity was focused on at the time. And they had a good mobile network, a lot of them, uh, before they had the ground, ground wire. Um, is that what the case was in Jakarta? Uh, very much so. Uh, you wouldn't find a lot of... Uh a lot of ground-connected uh, devices. Everybody had a mobile phone. I think the biggest problem that we found in countries like that is while everybody has a mobile phone and everybody wants data, they don't want to pay a lot for data. They're not going to pay $100 a month like we do here. Right. We're looking at five, six, seven bucks a month in a lot of cases. And that's so, probably a fortune in a lot of these places. It is yeah. a fortune in a lot of these places. Yeah, it, uh, it's, uh, it gives you a whole new perspective when you go to places like that and uh, Rio, I've been to Rio, outside of Rio, it gives you a whole new perspective on what's going on in the world yeah. which you just have no, no idea about. Yeah. Well, so one of the main reasons that I wanted to get you on the show, there were a couple reasons. Number one, your friend, and I, I like you and I like what you have to say, but uh, number two, you're very involved in the startup world in, in this area of the country here in North Carolina and Durham. Uh, in Raleigh and, and I guess in, in Cary in this particular area. seems like you focus mostly in the Durham area and that's where you're based. Um, but I think some of that, maybe maybe we can start out with talking about Motricity and how how your experience there led you led you into more of the startup world and um, especially the, the business proposition that you were talking about right then with, with regard to Indonesia, that you're sitting there and you're realizing 
or maybe you knew before you went in. I don't know. You can answer me, but um, it may the, the the price point seemed like it could very easily have been a barrier to doing business in that part of the world, and then knowing that could have led you in different ways in terms of your entrepreneurship. Yeah, it, uh, the price points over there very much <clears throat> they could have uh, you know d- done that, but a lot of times the companies that we're talking about doing business with. They're the ones accepting that risk. They're going to pay what we're looking for. It's how do they make that money back? And you know, unfortunately, over there, a lot of uh, a lot of governments put their hand in it and help them out. Although, they're in reality, it's not really helping them out. Right? It's taking control. Mm. So uh, that's from a business model from a U.S. company going over there. Uh, you're not really as much concerned about what the, the user is paying. You're worried about what the company can, that you're working with over there will pay you. Right. So, so was so Matricity started out as a few different companies, if I remember. Can you tell us a little bit about that history? Since this is where we know each other, and it sounds like right. that's kind of the start to your startup world. Yeah. So OpenSight was actually my first quote unquote startup, and they were bought by Siebel Systems. So uh, I was there for a while, but uh, I think Matricity slash Pinpoint was where I really caught the bug and really started joining startups. Uh, it started as Pinpoint Networks, which uh, was started by Judd Bowman and uh, Taylor Brockman. Uh, Judd was the business side, Taylor was the tech side, and it was basically a mobile search engine. So uh, before any, you know, Google was really big or whatever, they had provided a search engine to Verizon. That was pretty much the, the client at that point. Uh, and then it uh, we went into providing ringtones, games and graphics, SMS games. One of the one of the most interesting things to me that I saw was we had an SMS game on the market. We didn't develop the game, we just provided the platform to get it out there. That it was an SMS every time you move this little dude around in his little Dungeon and Dragons world. <laughs> and so, you know, when you're talking 10 to 20p in the UK, uh, a move, those totals added up. Yeah. And just seeing how much people were paying this game to every time they texted a guy to move to face the dragon over here or to climb the mountain over there, right? So 10 to 20 pence yes. per move. Okay. Per move. Yeah. So that, and you get thousands of these. A oh, day. yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the uh, the money rang up pretty quick in that model. Yeah. Uh, of course, Ringtones Games and Graphics had a very short 15 minutes of fame, as we all know. <laughs> Uh, so that's, uh, that's kind of how it came about. There was, there was a pinpoint merged with, uh, a company, can't remember the name of it, but they came out with, uh, the name of the new company was Powered by Hand. Uh, that was interesting to be in the UK with the name of a company like that. I think it was interesting to be anywhere with that particular name. I heard yes. stories about that name. Well, my friends in, in Britain really love to make fun <laughs> of me in that name. Uh, and then they uh, they went out and did some uh, branding exercises and became Matricity. Gotcha. So yeah. that's kind of how it uh, it came about. Gotcha. So, yeah. Gotcha. That's cool. So you said there was another group before that that actually got you more into the startup world. What, what was that open site you said? Open site was... Uh, Auction based software. Uh, it, uh, it came on before, you know, the eBay's of the world and all that kind of stuff. So they ran the auctions for Sharper Image. Uh, and, uh, auctions were getting really big and coming up. And before eBay had all the security issues back in the day, Siebel Systems came in and bought OpenSight. And at the time, it was one of the largest, uh, 
buyouts of a startup in, oh, wow. in the area. So at that point, I went over and uh, I worked on the uh, energy and uh, telecom vertical at Siebel as a sales engineer. Oh, cool. So I really learned the, the sales process at Siebel because if you don't know Siebel, they are they were because they're bought by Oracle now. They're huge. They were huge. Yeah. They were an incredible sales organization. That's really what they were. Now, how do you, you said they're an incredible sales organization. I mean, is that because you had a comparison against other sales groups? I mean, how did, because I'm totally new to the sales world. Right. So when someone's an incredible sales organization, I'm like, oh, I'd like to know what that means. And how, how can I determine what makes an incredible sales group? Like, because I would like to replicate that. Right. Uh, and again, I came from the tech world. So my definition of an incredible sales team is they sold a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that. But no, everyone, everyone in the company had to go through sales training. And it was extensive sales training. For mine, to be a sales engineer, uh, I had to go through a three-week course. I had to pass tests. I had to, you know, do do a lot of stuff to show that I was ready to be out in the field in front of customers. And it was a lot of relationship building and getting me comfortable speaking to customers. Uh, the, the incredible thing about that is... As soon as the merger went through, we're sitting in the room with uh, the vice president of sales engineering, and she's trying to figure out what she's going to do with this, right? Because there were questions there. So uh, they said, there's some sales engineering opportunities. Again, you have to go pass a test. We've got some upcoming uh, training programs in uh, New York, San Francisco, and Sydney, Australia. The guy sitting beside me, we're both like, Sydney, Sydney. please. <laughs> and uh, so I... I was told if I could find a flight to Sydney, Australia for under $1,500 that I was welcome to go to Sydney for my training. Oh, nice. 1498 <laughs> <laughs> So I got to go to Sydney for... Uh, for uh, two, for three weeks there, you, it, was, it was really nice. Now this was before Expedia and all that. So did you have to call up someone to negotiate that fourteen ninety eight, or you're not going to tell your secrets? You know, I don't even remember how I got that. <laughs> you know, I just remember getting it, and that's uh, that was that was golden. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I'm like you, James. In terms of sales, I feel like I know nothing, and yeah. I, I wonder about training programs like that and what the differences would be in learning sales at a large organization as opposed to learning how to do sales in a very small bootstrap organization. What are your thoughts on that, Jeff? Well, I mean, luckily, I got to do it in a large corporation. And I think that uh, when, you're, when you're in sales training within a large organization, it's in their best interest to prep you for the sales world as it really is. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with the third-party sales training and stuff like that, so I can't really speak to it, but... As, as you might imagine, I'm not sure that their interests are aligned with you selling a lot as to them selling their sales program, right? Right, right. So the interests are really aligned with a bigger company. Yeah. Uh, so I will, uh, I'll give Seawall all the credit in the world. I, I learned a lot during, it was only a year because I had to get back into something smaller. That was, I couldn't be the big company. Oh, again. really? Yeah. 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 So one of the things that, that we've been talking about a little bit lately, James, is the idea of when you're growing as an entrepreneur and, and growing in any, any field, you have to get uncomfortable in order to learn new things. The only way to learn new things is to get uncomfortable. Many times in large organizations, one becomes an uncomfortable, not because they want to grow, but because the organization wants to grow them in some way. When you're an entrepreneur, the only way you're going to accomplish your goals is to force yourself. There's no one else doing it. You have to force yourself into that discomfort. 
Um, the other thing that we've talked about lately is the idea, and you, this is you and I offline, we've had this conversation about what is the difference between feeling uncomfortable and learning something new and then feeling this sense in your gut that something's not right and that you shouldn't be doing something. The two feelings to me are, are, are very vague at this point. And it, 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 for some reason, this conversation is leading me there because it seems to me that there would be a lot of confidence in doing training at a large organization and what you're learning. However, you may be uncomfortable having been technical moving into a sales role. Have you been able to distinguish between those two things of feeling discomfort because you're learning something new and the, the feeling of something's just not right here? So for me, I'm always uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> so like right now. So like right now. Yes, perfect example. Well, we're, well, we're trying to make uh, you feel comfortable. But again, possible. no, you're doing a great job. But again, it's, as you said, it's something that you have to force yourself to do to, to get to where you think you want to be, right? Uh, so if I'm not doing something in my, on my own, I'm, I'm uncomfortable when I'm in front of people. I mean, I'm, I'm an introvert. Yeah. And uh, I will sit back and assess the situation before I make a move. So one of the reasons that I'm doing this is because we do know each other. Yeah. And we've known each other, so I'm more comfortable. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, really. no worries. Did you feel that sense of discomfort when you were moving into sales? Like, how did that happen? And, and why? How did, you, how did you resolve that? Because I know there are probably a, a bunch of people listening to this that are in the entrepreneurial world. And most of them are probably technical because of the way that we talk about this podcast right. and the way that we present it. And it is, it's completely uncomfortable to do sales. It's like this dirty thing that nobody wants to do. I mean, that's the way that I've always envisioned it is this, 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 this nasty, dirty practice that you have to learn. Like you're an imposition on other people's time. Yes. Yeah. 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 What, well, what were some of your tricks in overcoming that or what I are think, your thoughts about it? I think that the first thing is you got to get that out of your head, right? Because you're, you've got to go into the situation. You're there to help that person. You're there to help that person do a better job at what they're trying to do. It's, uh, if you can spend, you know, three hours selling them something that's going to save them, you know, a hundred thousand dollars through the year, you're not wasting their time. So I think the first thing is to not kind of be in that mindset, right? Uh, for me, it's, uh, it became, I hit a point in my career where I didn't like, sitting in my dark cube, staring at the screen all the, screen all the time. Yeah. And I was lucky at uh, Northern Telecom slash Bono Research that uh, they paid for my MBA. Oh, so that's nice. I was able to go back and get my MBA while still working. I was able to do it at night. And uh, it kind of kind of broke me out of, I didn't want to sit there and just, you know, tap on the keyboard all day. Right. Uh, so for me, I chose the lesser of two evils at that time. I was be a developer and sit there and write code all day or get out and try something new. Get some vitamin so, D. So yeah. Get some vitamin D, exactly. So <laughs> Maybe I, not uh, in London, but, but at least when you're stateside, right? London's beautiful. Or, or Sydney. London is beautiful. <laughs> so for me, it was uh, it was an easy choice. I was ready for a change. Yeah. Uh, and I think you just have to get to that point or you have to kind of force yourself into uncomfortable situations. Yeah. But I, go ahead. Uh, I, it was a question about the MBA because um, I worked alongside a guy at Exhibitor for a while and um, he was pursuing his MBA and then he finally got it. And then uh, right after he got it, he, he parted ways with the company. Um, and I was talking to him about, like, now that he's gotten the MBA, like, what, what's next? And he said, they told him that once you get your MBA, you should see a radical change in 
your job situation. And so, and he said, if they, if you're not seeing that, you might need to explore moving to someplace else. In other words, that acquiring the MBA was going to radically change your role because we, I guess, especially for him, because he was in the sales, like a technical salesperson. And then he got the MBA and he wanted to, to move into something else, management, product management, et cetera. So, I mean, for you, was getting the MBA a moment where you could say, yep, things radically changed at that point? Or do you feel like you still would have gone to the sales route from a developer um, without it? So for me, uh, I had quite a different motivation for getting my my MBA than I think a lot of people do. Uh, I got my MBA for me. Yeah. I had zero business experience, uh, zero accounting, zero finance. When I got my double E at NC State, I talked my advisor into, I had a minor in history, so I didn't want to take the second econ class, so I talked my advisor into the history of American economics to help me get my minor. So I was very, very, like I had to take all these uh, prep courses to even get into the program before I could do it. So it was, it was totally for me. I don't think I would be doing anything different now with the MBA versus without it, but I think it made me more confident, made me uh, understand at least the lingo and what people were talking about in a cell situation. So that's that was what the MBA did for me. Right. Yeah, I, I would think that would be the case. Uh, my wife got an MBA several years ago, and I tried to learn through osmosis, learn through her vicariously, you know, how... What, what was going on in the MBA and what she was actually learning. And there is a whole lot of learning there. I know in starting a business, there there's there are all these things that you just don't want to do, the tasks that you don't want to get involved in, bookkeeping. How many people want to sit down and actually do their bookkeeping? But if you don't do it, you're hosed. And how many people want to sit and look at accounting and, and financial analysis and project out where you're going to be in terms of cash flow or in terms of the value of the business and um, all that kinds of all those kinds of things, or to look at markets and understand how your particular market segment works and, and where you fit into it, or what your competitors do and what their differences are. I would imagine that was a huge benefit over time. Uh, absolutely, and you know other benefits. Uh, I know you're doing a lot of the bootstrapping stuff, but when you go to look for money from a VC, you've got to be able to talk their language at least to some extent. You got to know what they're looking for, and I mean. Honestly, the, the most important thing I think I got out of my MBA was uh, Excel spreadsheet skills. <laughs> <laughs> I just did some mad lookups the other day, by the way. <laughs> Check out my pivot tables. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, and Excel is so helpful in so many ways. It's amazing how much that tool still helps and, and spreadsheet tools like that. Um, you know, I, I want to learn more about things like Albright Digital. So you and you were co-founder of Albright Digital, is that right? Yes, yes. With uh, my current business partner, Ricky Gibbs, uh, that uh, it was really an offshoot of uh, something that Capital Broadcasting was doing at the time. So they were the sole investor uh, in that. And Vicky uh, was, was hired to figure out what to do in the automotive industry. And uh, then she brought me on to kind of do the product piece of that. So I handled all product technology, getting it built, uh, everything from, you know, whatever needed to be done. I even was writing code again, which is not necessarily my forte or what I want to be doing any longer. Uh, thank God it was just JavaScript. So, <laughs> uh, and then Nikki handled all the, uh, the marketing and the business side of that. So, of course, it started with two of us. So I was doing my share of sales work also. So it started out, it was just the two of you, it you and Vicky. And how long was it the two of you before uh, it grew a little bit? 
we made our first hire, and it was a salesperson, probably about eight months in, something like that. And so... Obviously, if you can't answer, we'll just edit this out. But um, was that because of, I mean, was that because you had the backing to hire someone or was it because you had the revenue to support the hire? We had revenue by that point. Uh, it, I don't really know if it would have been enough to afford a hire at that time, but we did have revenue at that time. So. Yeah. And so it, it, you, you guys started growing. This was back in 2011 or 12? 11 or 12. And so you started growing a little bit. And at some point... Um, when, when was the inflection point? When did you see that you started to have something that was working? Our biggest uh, our biggest point was when we worked with a uh, an agency in the automotive industry, and they started reselling us. Is when we really started gaining momentum. The auto industry is a uh, is an interesting beast. It's uh, we were dealing not with uh, Ford and GM, but with individual dealership owners, so and dealership groups. So uh, it's very difficult to do a point solution into those guys because they are uh, a lot of them are, are a little old school in their ways, and they still think that the way you get people to your uh, to your dealership is they're gonna they're gonna drive by and see a car they want, they're gonna stop and go look at it, and from your sales power. They're going to go out and look. That's really how they still perceive they're going to do business. I mean, you look at the newspaper today and look at the car ads that are still in the newspaper, right? right. It's still a very old school type business. So uh, what we did is we kind of brought that sales power to the internet. And we taught them that this screen is now your sales power. You're going to know what people are looking for before they come to your, before they come to your uh, dealership. So th- th- what you're describing is... I mean, I know talking to Paul about, you know, approaches to how to sell what Beaufort Fairmont does or could do. And then for myself, from for the software I've written for folks, trying to sell what I can produce for them, sometimes it's really easy because the person kind of already gets it. Right? And other times it's like, uh, it's like climbing uphill uh, because they don't, they don't know. So you have to do education. And it, so it sounds like to me, like, like you had that problem where they still believe that the way we get customers is it's just chance. They're going to drive by or they're going to look in where you're going to look in the newspaper mm-hmm. or, um, I need a car. They look in the phone book, right. right? Even though I think we all kind of know that's really not how people buy stuff today. Right. For the most part. I mean, there's probably still, you know, maybe our, maybe our parents and grandparents that are still kind of old school, but most, most people. Um, are really gonna? I'm gonna go online. I'm gonna type in. I'm looking for a car. Um, so, how did you? How did you figure out? Okay, that's the problem. And then, how did you tackle that problem? Going to like dealer by dealer. So you have to find a couple of progressive dealers who are willing to jump on board and help with that and be beta testers for you and give you, you know, quotes and all this kind of stuff. And then put it out into their network, right? Because these dealers, they do have what's called 20 groups. And so they they go out to, they have a group of guys across the country and they meet uh, once a year or whatever it is and they talk about what's new and what they've done. It's their 20 groups. So it's like their little group of guys, right? They're, they're what'd you call it? They're 20 group. They're typically 20 of them. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Right. So, the, you know, 20 other dealers from different parts of the world. Hey, this is what's working for us. Maybe we should try it. Uh, 
So that's one way we did it. The other way, which was very successful for us, was getting with an agency who's already inside the dealership and has already built that trust. And it's it's the sales sales engineer scenario. A salesperson can go into a meeting and they can go, it works like this and it's going to do this for you and it's great. And they look at them like, you're a sales guy, whatever. Sales engineer, <laughs> a sales engineer can walk into that same room and say exactly the same thing. Like, yeah, you know, you're probably right. It's where it comes from, right? It's an engineer versus a sales guy. Even if their motives are the same, people view them differently. Hmm. So, hmm. <laughs> interesting. What, what what do you think is the line there? Is it is it the attitude or the it's background perce- or perception? Perception. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Like if you if you I mean was that would you go in with the title sales engineer? Like, uh, or were you just say I'm part of the sales team and I and I have the engineering background? Did they know? For Albright Digital, I, I went in as director of product and technology. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So from a tech side. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because one of the things that that I picked up on years ago was if you're going to be doing independent um, software development, right? If you call yourself uh, a developer versus a consultant. There's a huge world of like expectations and treatment, mm-hmm. right? So I guess you know, you walk in and say, "Yeah, I'm the VP of product development." Oh, please sit down, sir. Exactly. Let's yeah. talk. <laughs> it's, it's all about perception, and I mean, all you want to do at first is get in the door, right? Yeah. So uh, get in the door with whatever it takes to get in the door. Now, did you just randomly start? I mean, because you have to figure out which which. Uh, dealers are going to be progressive which ones are not you just start let's just call this one and start cold calling them we had some established relationships with a few dealers around the area and of course uh, capital broadcasting has relationships with dealers because a lot of dealers still put ads on TV right right so we had that and then uh, we went to trade shows Uh, there is a trade show called uh, Digital Dealer that skips that goes between Vegas and Orlando, uh, <laughs> depending on where it is. So we went to a lot of those, did demos, did the, uh, you know, the marketing. Hey, come, we did putt-putt in our booth one time for a for a golf driver or whatever, because that's what appeals to that market. Uh, so, yeah, just that's the kind of stuff that we did. Uh, and then it, it grows, and we then we have case studies. So one of the things that we did, and this was before it was very popular, is we helped dealers with their uh, reputation online. So we uh, we developed a application that allowed you to say, you know, do we need your expectations? Yes or no? Yes. Follows through, ask a few questions, and you know, allows the person to choose to put it on Google or Yelp or something like that. No, obviously, it skips that. Right, and it, gives, it shows a it gives a an email directly to the GM so that they can handle it uh, either in house or as soon as possible. So that the real thing is that when you buy a car, when you get service on a car, especially when you buy a car, the uh, the OEMs, the Fords, and the GMs send out surveys afterwards. And if you can get ahead of that survey by addressing a problem then you're golden because they get paid based on what their CSI scores are. Oh. <clears throat> so. And, and so, I guess knowing that, like that's pretty important, right? Because otherwise, you wouldn't know why it would be important. They wouldn't get ahead of the surveys. Right. Yeah. So that's a, that was a very, very good kind of uh, argument for sales, right? Yeah. So. so one of the things that's interesting to me about this is that I, 
I like to look at people who are doing these kinds of things, the serial entrepreneurs, the ones who are going out and starting company after company, and look at their LinkedIn profile and kind of see where they've been and which companies they've started and which industries they're, they're in and those kinds of things. And one of the things that I tend to notice is that people tend to stay in the same industry from one venture to the next or a very closely associated industry. And this to me seems like it's very outside of where you've been in the past and that you've, you've been able to move from one industry to the next um, in what appears to be relatively easy fashion, although I'm sure the bruises and the scars would, would tell me otherwise if you were to show them. Sure. So how did this work? I mean, you and Vicky are sitting around having a beer and you're like, let's do auto sales. <laughs> how, did that, how did that work? So, yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it came out of uh, capital broadcasting. So we didn't necessarily sit around having a beer. Let's go into auto sales. Auto sales was where they wanted to go, or, you know, auto dealerships, and they they brought on Vicky to kind of figure out where that would be, and then she asked me to come help. So then we started putting our heads together on what could we do in the auto industry. And uh, I'm a car guy. I love cars, so yeah. it, it was it's not that big of a stretch right. outside of everything that I've done. Uh, my grandfather was a used car salesman. I grew up in cars. I knew it. Uh, so it wasn't that big of a stretch, but I've always been one that, uh, while vertical knowledge is good, it's not the be all end all. You can get in, you can learn stuff like that. If you don't understand how software is built or how processes work or, you know, how to get from point A to point B in a relatively efficient manner, it doesn't matter if you have all the industry knowledge in the world. Yeah, and I, I kind of always believed the same thing coming from the software world is that the industry and the, the, the domain knowledge is secondary to understanding the principles of how you build a certain kind of business, especially today when everyone's business is software, almost. <laughs> almost everyone's business is right, software right. these days. Um, so I guess, I guess one of the things that I'd like to understand more about in the, making this move, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing is, is you really have to know who the big players are in the market. Um, you have to understand who the names are, who they're associated with, who has ties to, to whom, all those kinds of things. Who are the families of groups of companies that are working together, the families of networks who are working together. Who's big in your area? What's the talent like in your area? All these kinds of things go into whether or not a particular venture is going to work in a particular market. I know that people like Elon Musk, my understanding is that when he decided he wanted to go to Mars, he sits down and reads everything there is to know about propulsion and rocket ships and whatever. I say rocket ships like I live in 1950. That's <laughs> like awesome. Like, like rocket seven. ships. Like I'm seven rockets. They're awesome. Did you, did you sit down and learn about the rockets in your particular industry? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have to know it, right? Yeah. yeah I, uh, I spent a lot of time researching and trying to figure out what they did, how things work now, uh, talking to friends who have worked at dealerships to get insight. Uh, you can get a lot of insight from a guy who sold cars. Yeah. You know, yeah. so uh, there is a, there, there was a lot of research done before, you know, any line of code was even thought about. Gotcha. So, yeah. Gotcha. And now, you, did you have... I was just going to say, like, because of my background, the first thing I thought it was, I would start thinking about all the ways to technically solve all these problems. And then, I mean, I'm happy that it occurred to me, like, no, you fool. <laughs> like, that's not the first thing you need to know. <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> like, hold off on that, uh, cowboy. Uh, like you said, like, talking to people and getting to understand the lay of the land is far more important than going, wow, oh, should I use JavaScript for this? <laughs> that's not correct. Right. 
Well, that's cool. So, and, and I guess one of the, one of the things that's interesting to me as well is your new venture, um, Marlowe Consulting. Mm-hmm. You and Vicky are together again. So you've been together at Motricity, Albright Digital Media, and now at Marlowe. OpenSight. OpenSight, you were together as well. <laughs> interesting. So this is something that James and I have talked about a little bit off offline, which is it seems like there are certain people that you end up getting together with. There, there is a, a network that you have, but then there's an insider's network kind of thing. It's a small, tight group of people who all know each other, and a few of you work really, really well together, and you're able to do these things usually because thinking is slightly different but complementary enough that you can work together in a meaningful way, that you can produce more together than you could alone, those types of things. I assume you and Vicky do this. Can you talk to me a little bit about that relationship and about why it is that the two of you have been able to do these really big things together so far? Yeah, I think that our skills complement each other very well. Uh, she has a background in engineering. Uh, she worked at Mitsubishi, believe on hardware. So she has a background in engineering, but she uh, she's much better at getting out in front of people, and she's much better with the marketing aspects and things like that. Things that I don't know if I'm any good because I'm not interested in them, right? <laughs> I would rather sit back and think about, you know, here's a problem. How do you fix it? And, uh, you know, what's the best way to do that? We also have a, a, a good dynamic in that uh, she's a lot more, I'll say, this word's overused, but she's a lot more visionary than I am. She'll start throwing her line out, and, and I go through a couple ones that don't make sense. <laughs> so we kind of... She's got, you know, great ideas and I'm, I bring a little bit of realism back into that. So we just work very well in a lot of, in a lot of different capacities like that. It's, it's very much a complementary type of relationship. That's cool. Do you see that happening a lot with, with ventures as they, as they move forward? I know that you're part of the American Underground and part of the Groundworks Lab there. Is that right? Groundworks Lab? Yeah, the Groundworks Lab. Groundworks, I assume you're, you're mentoring all types of entrepreneurs. You're working with different people. Is this a pattern that you see? Uh, so with Groundworks, a lot of the ones that have come in at the very, very early stage because Groundworks doesn't take a percentage of the company and doesn't ask for anything. It's funded by a grant, the NC idea. Uh, so the companies that I've dealt with, I've dealt with companies that they, they walk in with an idea and that's it. And it's how do you take that idea and how do you talk to the right people before you decide if you want to use JavaScript or Ruby or whatever. So it's kind of guiding them down that path. I have seen uh, a couple of, of folks come through there that uh, have been with the same person in different uh, ventures. I think it's helpful. Uh, I, I don't know if I would be as successful as a single entrepreneur versus somebody with like Nikki and I. Because... Not only are we complimentary, we can bounce ideas off each other. Uh, you never feel that, uh, or at least I never feel that I'm alone in any decision or in any scenario. There's always someone there to talk to. Yeah. So for me, it's very helpful. Uh, it, other people are different. So if you, know, if yeah. you can do it on your own, more power to you. It just works better for me to be in kind of a, a team in mind. Well, I think everybody naturally t- tends to do that. You have to have some type of support group in order to do any anything and some, some type of group around you that's going to help you in different ways. It's funny you talked about the auto dealerships and they had groups of 20. And that was a little bit of their network to do some of these things. James and I talk constantly about our businesses and bounce ideas off of each other and where we're going with different uh, projects and, and, and ventures and things like that. My wife is huge for me. She's the one with the MBA and she's got the accounting and finance and, and whatever backgrounds. 
And she's terrific to bounce ideas off of because she thinks completely differently than I do. And that's very hopeful a lot of times. But yeah, I think everybody has, has different things, different people that they work with. And then you have to find over time the ones that you don't want their, their feedback. <laughs> there are those. Yeah. There are yeah. quite a few of those. And yeah. a lot of times you just end up listening really, really carefully and, and, and right. sending it to Dev Noll afterwards. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, in the same, I'm in the same scenario as you outside of thinking my wife is where I bounce all my ideas off of because we couldn't be more different either. You know, she has a liberal arts degree from Carolina. She works in uh, marketing, sports entertainment marketing, and, you know, I've got a double E from NC State. So, Aside from avoiding each other during basketball and football season, it's all good. school. I was going to say, do you have one of those license plates where it says a house divided, we got blue on one side and red on the other? <laughs> no, but an interesting story. So I have a 10-year-old son, and uh, I, was, I was a New York Yankees fan for the longest time because I loved Don Mattingly. And uh, my wife, couldn't, she's like, I'm not having another New York Yankees fan in the world. So she traded me. I got NC State. So my son is an NC State and an Atlanta Braves fan because we made that deal before he was born. It's important. That's hardcore. <laughs> negotiations out of the way. You should yeah. get free paraphernalia from the Atlanta Braves for that, I think. Um, yeah, I, that's so funny. And you do make uh, some agreements like that over time, don't you? Um, I guess, you know, one of the other things is Marlo. I want to hear about Marlo Consulting. I, you and I met back up at the Internet Summit recently in, I guess it was the spring of last year. or No, I guess it was fall, fall of last year. So we talked a little bit there, and I, I learned a good deal at that event. But then sitting down and having coffee with you afterwards, uh, started to learn more about where you are and where things are going and a little bit about Marlo. And now I'm using some of your services. Uh, Beaufort Paramount is doing terrific, and we're, we're growing at, at, a, at a good pace, and I'm looking to grow it even faster, of course, because that's just what you want to do. Right. Um, but you guys have come in, and Vicky's been a huge help to me, and your insights have been very good as well. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about who it is you're targeting with that business to work with um, and what it is, what is your vision or, or Vicky's vision maybe in this case for where that, for where that group is going. So yeah, we uh, we have just recently incorporated. We've uh, we've been doing some consulting on our own for the last few months, and we decided we're better together because we can complement each other. So we uh, we uh, incorporated, and we're looking to help uh, small and mid-sized businesses kind of you know really get going. It's for companies who are, are just starting out, and they need help with new product introduction. They need help with marketing, or for those medium-sized companies who are looking to go to that next level or you have a new product that's coming on. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. It's uh, getting you from, from just kind of going along slowly to really ramping up is really what we're trying to focus on. We, uh, we want to help you kind of do things that are going to, that you, you're spending so much time focusing on your, you know, inside your business and on your clients that you're not really focusing on your business. So we want to take that and do that for you. So that you can move forward while still addressing all your client needs, because that's what's going to, you know, be beneficial to you. It's a hard transition and a hard balance, I know, to to be working in the business versus working on the business and trying to figure out how how to do that. Because you have to keep the money rolling in, and you have to do the business for a certain period of time. But you're only going to grow if you can move outside of that and learn how to to build the business. Right. Um, but you guys have been terrific to work with so far, and I really appreciate it. What when you talk about small and medium sized businesses. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that sizing is and then are there particular industries that you want to focus on as well? Sure. Uh, so from an industry point of view, uh, not really. I mean, software, we're not going to, we're not going to help anybody doing horse uh, trading or yeah, horse trading <laughs> or, <you> ranching. Know, <laughs> we're, we're not going to, we're not necessarily going to help you if you're, if you're selling a car, <laughs> right, right. but no, I'm not kidding about that. Uh, so from sizing point of view, I mean, we have a client who is, uh, who's one person really, uh, with some family backing. And, uh, we've taken, we've taken an idea and I've built a product around the idea and it's in development right now. Oh, cool. So we're hoping that that does go somewhere really, really good. It's, it's a great idea. Uh, and, uh, it's, it fills a, a hole that we see. So then we, we deal with companies that are, are established and been around for three or four years, but they're stagnant. They're, you know, they, they ramped up and they hit that plateau and it's just kind of plateauing along, but they want to take the next step. And, uh, it's so from one to right now, we're just starting out. So I'd say we've worked with a company of one to a company of about 20 is I think what they are. But the size of the company is not really, not really the issue. The issue is, do you have, are you stagnant and are you trying to make, take it to the next level? No matter how good you are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah, and plenty of people are are just growing at a very at, at a rate that's smaller than they want, right. you know. And I would imagine those are the ones too. Figuring out a way to put afterburners on this thing and exactly. really get it going, right? Yeah, yeah, and a lot of times it it can be as simple as some process tweaks that can help you, you know, get over a hump. Yeah, but uh, it's you know. It's, we can fix the things that keep you up at night is what I keep hearing. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I like so that. I like that's, that. Uh, so what, what are the things that keep folks awake at night? Well, for everybody, for everybody, it's different. I mean, for some people, it's, uh, how do I, how do I get out and market it? How do I enhance my sales funnel so that I can, uh, you know, bring more folks into that funnel? And because at the end, because with the sales funnel, you lose people along the way. And how do I get to the end with a percentage of those in the funnel? A lot of people don't even know how to get the funnel started. Right. For one, uh, there are what's keeping what was keeping our smaller guy up at night is he had an idea for a product, but had zero concept of how to even make that get started. So it was coming in, it was doing requirements for him, and you know, doing uh, using balsamic and doing basic little screenshots, and now getting it built. Right. Yeah. So the whole business was keeping him up at night. Right. So it depends on the size of the business. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. Can you tell us how to get in touch with you or how to get in touch with Marlowe Consulting? Sure. Uh, Marlowe Consulting, the best way to get in touch is just Jeff at Marlowe Consulting Group. Uh, spell Marlowe? M-A-R-L-O-W. Okay. Consulting Group. Okay. Uh, that's the best way to, and Jeff at's pretty easy. So. Yeah, that part's yeah. easy. Exactly. Cool. Cool. Well, Jeff, I've enjoyed knowing you and getting to know you better and I hope to get to know you even better than this. Um, I, I'd love to hear from you again and next time there's uh, a chance to get on here in, in a year or so and learn more about how Marlo is doing at that point and what other ventures you've got going on. Um, I think there's a whole other episode here just to talk about Groundworks Labs, I think. Um, yeah. It sounds like a terrific It's a great organization, especially for uh, someone who is trying to, to get their foot in the door. It's It provides a lot of, a lot of services. Yeah. It's, is there any, I guess, one more question. Is there anything that you would, one single thing that you could tell people to help them either grow as an entrepreneur, make the step toward entrepreneurship, or grow in their career? So it's going to sound cliche, but don't be afraid to fail. 
Okay. And if you're going to fail, fail fast. <laughs> All right. All right. I like it. I like yeah. it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And good luck to you. Sure. Thank you, guys. Cool. Thanks. We always appreciate everybody listening. Um, I'm, I'm humbled, James, every time I look at the numbers and the fact that there are people who listen to this. It is kind of shocking, isn't it? I'm, and I'm very gracious for every single one of them. Um, we're actually at probably um, several listens a day now, and I never would have guessed that that would be the case back in September. It's not just our moms. It's not just our moms anymore because they don't have the time to listen that much to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, and we'll talk to you later. Ciao. <laughs>